Hello and welcome back to our Cyber School from Home podcast. We're continuing on with our discussion about the book of Isaiah. As always, we're glad that you're here. Uh, my name's Cameron, uh, joining you from my house in Launceston, Tasmania, having just hurriedly left Ken's house so that I could get back to my house in time to call Ken over the internet to record this podcast. Uh, and I'm Ken, having just said goodbye to Ken uh, in those circumstances. And also having caught up with him earlier in the day. So Cam and I have caught up a lot today and we're here again. Uh, Luke and Clancy, welcome. You can join our conversation. <laughs> oh, it hardly seems polite. <laughs> Luke and I, who are within kilom- like two kilometres yes. of each other but have not seen each other today. Also calling each other yeah. through a server in Singapore or something. <laughs> and I today am recording from within a house that also has a cat in it. All oh, right. Congratulations. So- welcome, cat. Should we expect meows in the background? Well, in addition to small child noises, yes. <laughs> and I'm Clancy, also recording from Kurumbong, like Luke, but not with a house with a cat in it. Right. Just before we jump into today's passage, I read an interesting thought. It doesn't. It's not going to tie into our discussion, but I thought I'd share it. Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment called God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense. And uh, in it, the author... Th- quotes an early church father, Oregon, who was responding to uh, criticisms and conflicts around the Christian message of his time. And one of them was was about uh, the devil. Specifically, there was an earlier Roman writer who mocked the Christians. They believe in this God who, who's not even strong enough to overcome his adversary without suffering huge indignities uh, at the cross. And uh, Oregon goes to some length to describe uh, why Christians believe what they do about the devil. And in it, in this book, the point was made that uh, we quite comfortably ascribe to certain passages, like the ones we've read in Isaiah, that are not obviously directly about Christ. We're quite happy to to see them as pointing towards Christ, even though they had a local meaning at the time. In this podcast, in previous episodes, we've, we've looked a bit askance, at some of the passages we've read about Lucifer on high and being cast down, which obviously have a very local meaning at the time as referring to this or that king of Assyria or other. But but if we are willing to extend to Old Testament passages messianic overtones, uh, then perhaps it is legitimate to extend to other passages diabolical overtones. It's, it's interesting that that comes via a reading from Oregon. Oregon is famous in among the church fathers because when he read the passage in Matthew 19, which says uh, some uh, were made eunuchs by others, some were born that way, um, and some, uh, I can't remember the end of the verse. Anyway, he read this verse and read it as a command from Christ and had himself castrated so ah. that he could follow exactly what the Bible says. Well, there you go. Uh-huh. That's a very local application. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, we'll we'll leave it to our readers for them to make up their mind on on whether the Bible should be read quite that uh, specifically, and and we might jump into Isaiah forty, which is altogether a tone of uh, that we're more comfortable with, and uh, this certainly is one of the chapters that is. I've heard referred to more often than some of our previous discussions. So we're going to read the entire chapter. I might start. I'm reading from the NIV, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read the first five verses. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountain on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket, They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A workman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. As a gift one chooses mulberry wood, wood that will rot, then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them in a tent to live in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as naught. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There are pockets of that chapter that are among the best-known verses in all of Scripture. That ending is, you know, is the kind of couple of verses that you see on plaques and on, 
you know, pieces of Christian art that people hang in their doorways and in the foyers of churches. And the the voice in the wilderness calling, yes. prepare the way for the Lord, is, it, is another one? It gets, uh, yes, exactly. It gets quoted in the New Testament. And, of course, the uh, Handel's Messiah opens with the first uh, five verses, uh, the first few songs of chapter 40. Um, and yes. actually, then later, there's another song from Isaiah in this chapter, in verse 11. Uh, so it is a, it yes. is a, but then there is a large section that I, is, is obscure. I've certainly read it before, but it is, it is not well, something that I would have been able to remember was in here. No, I, I've yet to see a, for instance, best wishes or get well card where the message inscribed on the inside is all people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the card you want to receive when you're in hospital. No. In, in fact, the lesson refers to that. I think we might come back. There's a question in the lesson that refers to us being like grass and and questions us about how we are to apply this passage uh, in our own lives. Uh, before we get on to some of the questions in the lesson, which had some very good questions, what are the other parts that are less known? There's some sentiments in here that speak very much to the discussions we've had in recent weeks. In verse 15, the nations are just like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. In other words, of no consequence to the things that God's weighing. You, 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 if you had some dust on the scales, you wouldn't be accused of cheating because the dust will technically mean you read the wrong thing. But Well, unless you measure in gold. Unless you measure in gold, yeah. Or dust. Yeah, like, or dust. Um, <laughs> Lebanon Very is not good. sufficient for the fires. Uh, the nations are as nothing. One of the, one of the things... I have been surprised at because when I think of Isaiah, I think of passages like the ones uh, you pulled out, Clancy, that are well known, that feature often in churches and signs. And and I, I, I approached this book unprepared for the sort of thorny issues it would raise about God's treatment mm. with, with large groups. And this idea that nations are, are to him so small. He can lift that one up and he can push that one down and as he wills, raises heaps of questions. I wanted to say on that point, Cam, that, um, you know, it is one of my pet peeves taking a Bible verse in isolation. And mm. and I suppose, to be fair, I should also be peeved about it when we do it with the verses I like and I like the application of, as well as the verses we don't like. Because, you know, that, that, that you know, he, they will rise up on wings like eagles is such a good poetic illustrative phrase um and it's just it it is like you said so well known taken everywhere but you ask people what's isaiah 40 about what's the rest of what's the context of that verse i i didn't know um i'm really glad we we decided beforehand to read the whole chapter today um because i think it puts some of these well-known verses in in a in a more interesting context indeed i i I, I delighted in it. Um, I, I, it, it. There were bits that popped out everywhere. Um, uh, and I, I saw bits of, of Job. Um, mm. uh, you know, who's made... Who, who is it who's, who's done all of these things? Well, it's, it's God. And, 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 and verse 13, I, I don't know. There's something that really speaks to me about this. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Um, uh, first of all, that that God uh, has a mind, uh, that there is a mind of God. 
well, what must that mind be like? Um, I think of some of the great minds that I've encountered um, in my life, and I've got great counsel from them. Occasionally, I've thought I might be able to give counsel to another mind. Um, uh, and yet, this mind is something degrees of a completely different order uh, to any mind that I may have encountered. Who can, who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsel? Who knows the, the mind of the Lord? When, when you were, began talking, Ken, I, I felt a, a small tongue-in-cheek, hopefully a, a, an emergence <laughs> of the spiritual gift of tongue-in-cheek. Um, <laughs> Don't remember that, that one. Uh, surely, surely that is the thing that we all pretend we can do, certainly at the churches I've ever been at. Exactly. We, we are all quite confident that we know what God wants. And, and where other people are in error and where we're correct. And it's in fact, it's our job to explain to the world what God wants. And we do most of our, all of our evangelism and most of our church services are celebrating the things that God has taught us, which we know. And God has taught us things, let's not diminish that. But this idea of reveling in our ignorance. of it's like It's like a small toe dipped in a large ocean and you just realize that there's it's really big. There's a lot of things yeah. in there drop that you in, can't see. A drop see in, in a bucket, Cam. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. a drop in a bucket, yeah. It reminds me of um, a little quote from Lord of the Rings. Tolkien, of course, being a very good Christian writer. Um, very early on in, in the first book in the trilogy, um, where Frodo is, is met up with an elf, who's by far the wisest person that he's encountered at that point in the journey. And essentially, he wants help and advice. And the elf tells him, advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. Which I just think is something that as Christians we should ponder. Because we, we are primed to give advice to others. And we should think maybe more on the limits of our knowledge. And the fact that even the very best advice could, could lead to something going you know, badly wrong. I particularly like that thought, Cam, if you look at it from in verse sort of 18 onwards. You know, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare him? Is he like an idol? You know, one, you know, you know what an idol is made of. You know yeah. how to make one. Hmm. These yeah. are the ingredients for an idol. I love the bit about, hey, you have to make it so that it won't fall over. Mm. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. And if you can't get the best materials, well, this one will do. Yeah, you know, yeah. Here's your lower class idol. <laughs> we referred to that actually in our discussion of Isaiah 6 when we were trying to reconcile some a difficult passage. We're, we mm. speculated maybe God through the prophet Isaiah was, was using humour because he's obviously using it here. Mm. This is, this yes. is tongue in cheek. This is poking fun. This is... Uh, you know, but I think, I mean, yes, th- that's true. But what I'm, the reason I'm liking it is not for its, you know, undeniably humorous picture. But it's the, the, the aspect is just you know what an idol is made of. You know what an idol is. But God is not like something that you can mm. understand. That there is, that as much as we like to lay out our beliefs and explain verses from the Bible and as, as much as we like knowing that God, there are, there are, there is mystery, mm. and that I, I there is, 
a phrase that I, I really like that is that is following God is like stepping into the into mystery, and we are very uncomfortable with that in the Adventist Church um, you- because we like answers and we like proof texts and we like we like knowing what we're getting into. Eugene Peterson in his book Christ Plays in Ten Thousand Places, the title of which comes from one of the poems that we considered a little earlier, um, but uh, he says. Uh, we inhabit a mystery. We should not pretend to know too much. Mm. Well, I, but, I, and I, Glancy, I really... in, in the history of the church, there have been whole bodies of, of people and orders of, 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 and communities within the Christian church that have really adopted the celebration of this unknown mystery as their calling, mm. like immersed in the mystery. Mm. Uh, and, and I know we look down our noses at, sort of strict liturgies and high churches full of statues and stained glasses. and But the feeling you get in a church that's huge and silent, but filled with people who are all thinking, because in that point of the liturgy, it's silence. And you do get that sense of something other. Yeah, well, mystery gives you space to contemplate. Answers don't. Um, and it's, I mean, that that is very, you know, that's very... That can sound very airy fairy and woo and nebulous, but there is a there is nothing like God. I mean, and I guess I you know I say that, and then I think, well, we are like God, aren't we? Because we're made in God's image, and like. Can I pick up on a theme that we've explored a number of times, but I think it comes out again here, because in twenty one and twenty eight, do you not know? Uh, mm. The clear answer to that question is, well, uh, no. Uh, have you not heard? Um, so we and have it not been told you. Right. Getting, have you not understood? And the, they will hear but not understand. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yes, that you will not. That the seeing and the hearing mm. and the understanding that's not there because it's simply something that is beyond seeing and hearing you, and understanding. You know it There's is story. so big. There's a story, Ken, that actually ties into that uh, seeing and hearing, which I heard in a sermon, and I hope I'm remembering it correctly, and it ties into this theme of, of idols too. And, and uh, uh, Clancy, you may know this better than me, but there's a Jewish tradition that before Ab- Abram left his father's household, he took an axe and destroyed all his father's gods. And then he left the it axe rings up. rings a bell. And he left the axe up. It left one god undestroyed and left the axe up against its pedestal. And in the morning, his father was furious and called him in and said, who's, dest- who's gone and destroyed all these gods? And Abraham said, well, it's obvious, isn't it? It was that one there. He's, he's sick of the others. And, and his father said, don't be silly. He couldn't do that. He's just a statue. And Abraham said to his father, let your ears listen to what your mouth is saying. <laughs> if, if, the statue was, what, but, if the statue is not capable of destroying the other statues it's not capable of much mm. so you've, Ken, you bring, bringing up these previous verses in Isaiah you've just brought me in a moment of introspection all the way back to Isaiah 1 where you, if you, I think it was Isaiah or Isaiah 6 where I had that big issue about God essentially instructing Isaiah to tell people in a way in which they won't understand, mm, you know. Mm. And I'm thinking of the audience of Isaiah being the people of the time that all this was happening. 
right? But of course, we're also the audience of Isaiah, and I also don't understand. So that prophecy's very much come true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're all committing the sin to which Luke was complaining about a minute ago, which is pulling this out by itself, because this is a statement deliberately related to who will you compare God to? We compare it to yeah. this and that. Don't you know that it is God that is like God? Yeah. So it is. It is an answer to the, there is the a question suggestion. already posed. Well, there but is we a suggestion pull, but that it that... is the this. We know these. I mean, I don't know. I have certainly heard these. Wasn't there a famous Adventist preacher who used to start all his sermons with this verse? Have you not known? Do you not? Have you not heard? So it is a thing that is again known by itself. Yeah, and there is there is inference in here that that we will never know everything. But there's also the suggestion that the Israelites should actually know a fair bit more than they do. Mm. So it actually in tone it sort of carves a middle road. There's no suggestion in here that we we are capable of knowing nothing of importance. It's it's you, not you all may mystery. not have understood the mind of God. You may not be His counselor. Uh, you may not have given Him knowledge. But don't you know He's the one who made the world. He's He's above it. He made it. He uh, sustains it. He uh, is the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't get tired or weary. He gives strength to the weary. And he's the one that you can trust. So and don't you at least know that about him? And yeah. you know enough Got, not yeah. to build idols. Like you yeah. ought to yeah. know enough. You ought to know enough about... It's, it's, so there are things we know. Mm. And I think, I think that there is a... That's sparked a thought in my mind that I think that saying there that you... You may, you know, you don't, you can't create God. You don't know how to make God. You don't know exactly sort of what God is. But I think one of the messages of this chapter is you should know who God is or what God is like in the sense of the kind of God he is rather mm. than what he's made of or, you know, how, yes. I, I think you can often learn things about somebody or something by looking at what they're not. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's often very hard to describe the essence of, of somebody. Um, but you can at least start by creating some boundaries, by limiting and, and saying, well, they're not like that, and I've never seen them do this. Um, mm. uh, so at least that gives you, okay, well, we know we're working within this sort of realm. Of course... With God, that doesn't necessarily work because the things that you know about him are that, in fact, he is incomparable and above and beyond everything. Um, well, I think I'll beat, I'll beat Cam to the Lewis quote for this week, <laughs> which, is, which is when the Pevensey children ask Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And he says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's an... That's right, and then I I can't remember which book it's in. Uh, maybe Voyage of the Dawn Treader. One of the children is asked if they know Aslan, and they reply, "Well, actually, I'm not sure, but he knows me." Hmm. Yeah, yeah. In this passage, there's a there's a there is an interesting progression. We've drawn attention to these verses that right in the middle of the chapter, and first of all, before we start, uh, I don't have I left my Bible in a car and hurried in in great haste. So I don't have it in front of me, and I'm I'm looking on a online at the chapter. So I don't have the context around me. Do the chapter breaks come 
at fairly sensible moments, or are they halfway through a message? Or is this one self-contained message? It looks fairly self-contained to me. It comes immediately after chapter 39, which is uh, the finishes with the word yes. of the Lord uh, to Hezekiah, and he said, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah, okay. And at the end of the chapter, does the end of this chapter conclude a message? Uh, uh, no, not, not really. No, it continues no. straight on. Okay. It continues in the, the same in the same speech. Continues straight on. Okay. Well, in that case, my comment may may not make complete sense because uh, I was going to comment on the structure of this message. But if this message is not over at the end of chapter forty, then then the comments may not stand. But there's a progression from small to big to small. So. Mm. So God, the passage starts with a God who's very imminent, a God who's very attentive, a God who's making straight ways for the for roads and for... Um, He's speaking tenderly. He's speaking tenderly mm-hmm. to needy people and providing comfort. And then there's a passage where God is big, really big. Mm-hmm. And, and what, so God is beyond comparison. And what does he use his immense power his immense creative energies for what? Where does he direct his awesome awesomeness, um, as Kung Fu Panda would say? Um, <laughs> where, 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 what, what does he use this limitless and boundless energy for? For those uh, of you tends... who are listening to the podcast, you need to have viewed Cam with his arms spread out wide and above his head as far yeah. as they can possibly go when he's talking right. about boundless and awesomeness. So. Um, so what what does he do with all this power? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers he gathers the lambs in his arms. Uh, although that's in the first part, isn't it? Yes, but oh, then but it goes no, back to it. Still it goes back to it in the circle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It goes yeah. back to it. Uh, you may think it says in verse twenty seven that God's so big he won't notice you, but don't you know? Haven't you heard? Which is the same passage that was used to introduce God's awesome power. Uh, don't you know? Haven't you heard? That uh, he doesn't get tired, he doesn't get weary, and he he gives strength to the weak. And then the denouement of this chapter seems to go in the reverse order to what you would expect if you're wanting to build up to a climax. If it was going to be a climax, if if you wanted to go, yeah, if you wanted to build up to a climax, you would say, God, God will help those who walk so that they won't be faint. He will help those who Mm. run so that they're not weary. He will help you soar on wings like eagles. But it says it in the reverse order. It's, it goes from big to small. Mm. Uh, which So I see a sort of a broad pattern. That the picture of God's awesome power is, is great effort is gone to to ensure that we don't mistake God's awesome power for distance. Him being distant and from actually us. It's can. so big and beyond us. Mm. It's actually quite important, I think, to go. It, it goes. I mean, it continues on to the next chapter, but just into verse one yes, of chapter please forty-one, read them, which is, "Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment, keeping in mind, of course, that in old, the Old Testament, judgment is justice mm. for the people of God. Yeah. Um. So that is. I think when you, particularly in line with what you've just said about it's God is so big and mm. everything else is so small, but he draws near to the small and then he's calling the people to draw close to him. I think that is a mm. inside the, the sort of the, the loop that you've drawn there. Mm. We have been 
very slack over recent recordings with our self-imposed time limits. We, we haven't been making any progress at keeping our, our discussions brief. And we haven't yet got onto any of the interesting questions in the lesson. So I wonder if we can do a sort of quick fire round. Can we, can we go through some of the questions, Clancy, that we were talking about before we recorded? And see I we just can... wanted on the record, Cam, that self-imposed is a real stretch. Uh, aspirational time limits. <laughs> aspirational is much better. No, even that aspirational is... Aspirational rough time guidelines. Yeah, yeah. I think even aspirational is misleading. Okay. It suggests that we would actually seek to achieve it if we could. Can they are aspirational when I'm in the middle of an edit? Yeah. <laughs> You're just aspiring to them out of sync. So the question on Thursday was... What kinds of idolatry do we face as a church today? Does idolatry appear in more subtle forms in the church today? And if so, how? Luke. Me, me, me. Pick me. No, no. Luke, Luke. Doctrine. It's doctrine. One may worship yes. doctrine above God mm. and uh, get so hung up on it that it is essentially a form of idol worship. Yeah. I will believe the right thing, whatever God says. And and the reason why it's an idol is what we referred to earlier. It's the celebration of what we know, as opposed to, you know, the ministry. How, how I do sometimes worry whether collectively as a denomination, we celebrate the knowledge, or do we celebrate the fact that we know it? <laughs> that it the is our knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. It is our knowledge. Uh, the comment I was going to make is uh, a little facetious, and I'm, uh, but it may inform the discussion a bit. In the in the context of what's discussed in Isaiah, we don't have any idolatry today at all. Like what Isaiah's talking about is people consciously, with devotion and intent, worshiping a statue and and believing and, it to be a god. Yeah. Yes, divine. Yeah. Yeah. And and when we talk so about sure. money being an idol or or other things being an idol, uh, we are taking a co- what was a very concrete thing and making it abstract. But, of course, we have the support of the New Testament writers, and this is one of the things that Christ did, is he said, you know, a whole bunch of things that were really concrete. He turned much more introspective. Uh, the commandment about murder, well, you know, are you angry with someone? Uh, Christ sort of did start to, uh, you may not be, you may not be, physically bowing down to an idol. I, I'm taking Christ's line of reasoning, you know, into this context. You may not be physically bowing down to an idol, but I think it is it is sensible for the lesson to ask this question. And uh, the difference is that if the idols we have are accidental, or perhaps not accidental, uh, perhaps they're inadvertent, or perhaps they're less deliberate than, than what's described here, that means one of the qualities that they will have is we won't know that we're doing it. Whereas, whereas if you'd ask the people in Isaiah, did, did you, this morning, what did you do? Oh, I went and bowed down to my idol. They, they, it's, they know what something is doing. Whereas when, when idolatry becomes, perhaps there's some quality of our devotion or of our lives, uh, which has become something inadvertently or unknowingly, it's become more important than God. It, it becomes, I think, still a very legitimate discussion, but it becomes much more sort of scary and almost certainly the idols we are most in the grip of are the ones that we're least aware of. I've got a few comments to respond to that, Ken. 
I, I'm not entirely sure. I, I accept the distinction exists uh, between a deliberate idolatry and a uh, an unconscious idolatry, if you like. Um, so, so I accept that distinction, but I, I'm not so sure that it's such an important one, um, because if you think, okay, so maybe inadvertently I'm worshiping money, um, but I am in fact still relying on it as the power in my life, as yeah. the thing that provides me with security, um, and it is done, albeit that I don't know it is an idol that I am bound yeah. down to. It is still done as consciously. Uh, yeah, yeah. my reliance is on it is still as um, pervasive as the, it would be if I were physically bowing down to that idol. Yeah. The, the point I was making, Ken, is not that our idol, idolatry is less serious. It's just that it's less ah. easy to see. Yes. So when, yes, when, they, when the lesson says to you, when the lesson says to you, what idols may you be in the grip of, if the idols we're in the grip of are inadvertent ones, then you shouldn't ask me what idols I'm in the grip of. You should ask my wife. Mm. Or someone who has to mm. live in the same house as mm. me, or my students, or we'll bring her in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder what is an idol. Then? I'll text her now and get her to tell me. Okay. What, what, what is an idol? I've got some <laughs> ideas about what an idol might be, but what do you think? What is an idol? In the context of this verse, it's it's something uh, to which undue, inappropriate. Uh, power is ascribed to it, like we 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 suppose it to be something of great value and worth and power, and we then use it to make decisions in our lives. You know, I, or so, it, it I can give something with power. I can give you a pretty. No, no, it doesn't have power intrinsically, but we ascribe power. We to ascribe it, it power. Yeah, yeah, we ascribe. Hang on, am I muted again? No. Okay, no. just double checking. I can give you a pretty <laughs> interesting suggestion for an idol that I think a lot of people worship recently. Yeah, uh, I think that the year 2021 was an idol worshipped by many under that definition, Cam, because during 2020, all our hope. everyone was looking forward to 2021 solving all the problems. Yeah, yeah. this is true. And, that is and yet not here how we are, gone works. into another lockdown in Victoria again. Yeah. Um, it, this is an interesting conversation because I think that's it's a what you said then, Cam, about you know the idol when we when we start saying you know what idols do you worship? We uh, technology and money and success yeah. and the these none of these are idols that would be recognized by ancient people mm. and none of and you really have to abstract um things in the old testament to make it about those things it's interesting to me that when jesus in matthew in uh, in the sermon on the mount talks about money getting in you know you serving money rather than serving god he doesn't refer to it as he doesn't refer to it as you can't serve two gods or you can't, you know, money is an idol. He says you can't serve two masters. You know, you, it, it is it is a thing that you don't really find explicitly, but it is something that we do we do talk about because it is something, you know, we don't, it is a good, things that get in the way or control us or that we spend yeah. more time, you know, put our priority, base our priorities on rather than, you know, faith in God or, or following God are things that, I think function as idols, but well, they certainly, it is certainly, I agree with you, Cam, an abstraction from. Maybe, maybe here's a perspective which has some truth in it. I, I certainly would hesitate to say it. it would be true in all circumstances, and I'm sure you'll find questions with it. But what if the case is not so much that today we have many idols and we worship too many things, but what if, what if the problem is that we just don't worship anything at all, even, even God? So, so 
worship the ancient people. It involved prostrating yourself. It involved, you know, it was it was ritual and it was it was involved and it was occupying your whole mind and everything else. And you know, do I go to a beach and just lie out on the sand and spend half an hour? saying all the things that God's done in the world that are just so wonderful and awesome and incredible. and In other words, the problem may not be that I have too many idols I'm worshipping. The problem might be that I, I'm just not doing worship enough at all. Mm-hmm. And, and the ancient people were inclined to worship too many things. Perhaps our treatment of God is just a bit too dry and just a bit less like so with what you're saying cam is that as a as a race we've gone from worshiping too many undeserving things to worshiping not enough we satisfy ourselves with titillation and entertainment rather than worship yeah i think i think sounded like everyone's grumpy grandfather then cam oh did i (laughs) well you young people and your entertainment (laughs) i think i think cam's right uh we we settle for amusement so, um, mm, Luke, one of the lines, our age. one of one of the lines from *Leaf by Niggle*, which uh, was the book you put us onto, was when he goes to the hospital and he's made to do lots of menial jobs, repetitive menial jobs, and uh, and uh, it makes the comment that uh, Niggle uh, wasn't having any fun. He definitely wasn't amused. But he couldn't deny feeling a, a sort of sense of satisfaction in small jobs well done. Mm. And, and there's a great contrast made there between amusement and satisfaction. And, mm. and when we make this, when we make, I'm, I'm sure an ancient would look at the way I think about money or all the other things that we, these abstract quantities we identify as idols. And he would say, oh, so you worship money, do you? Well, where is its temple? In your house, where where is the room you've devoted to it? How many times a day do you go into that room? And when you describe that, the ancient would say, "Well, hang on, you're not doing worship at all." Maybe maybe we are ruled. I think having many masters might be might be true. A better analogy. Yeah. Maybe it's a better analogy, and it's certainly the case that we ought to be self-critical. And this idea of saying, "What in my life is most like an idol?" is, I think, perfectly valid. But but if our fault is that we uh, if our fault is that we enter too um, flippantly into acts of worship, even when they're directed towards the true God, perhaps the, the, the idol analogy becomes less significant. I think this, this links to what we were talking about earlier when, when you know, we were talking about mystery and you know, the, the, our, feel, our need to sort of quantify and draw borders around what we understand about God and the divine and, and mystery and needing to have all the answers and that we and how we, you know we, we reflected that in our faith tradition we don't have much time for contemplation mm. and silence mm. and I think that's not just a, a an issue in our own in a need to have the uh, our own faith tradition which has centered around answers to questions yeah um, but it is also a problem, you know, it's the, the problem of the great, one of the great problems of our age is the lack of contemplation. We, we feed our, ourselves so much information all the time. Yeah. You know, we don't, guess... we don't have, you know, we don't, there, mm. there is a, you know, there's, there's so much uh, 
so much st- the research and stuff coming out now about the importance of children being bored and the fact that they don't know how to be bored because we as adults as you know we model to them you don't ever allow yourself to be bored Constant you are always doing something reading something scrolling something yeah have we fallen even mm. lower than the contemporaries of Isaiah who worship the wrong thing have we fallen to the level not of worshiping the wrong thing but to the level of indifference about worship at all if we could it be the case that if as a society we all became frog worshipers it might be a step up um, well in terms um, of I, at least appreciate uh, you know giving I, our I, attention to something I may have been muted when I made the comments so you probably didn't hear it about being the audience of Isaiah who hears but doesn't understand. Um, yeah. I think, you know, we when we looked at that passage and we were looking at, you know, and we were talking entirely as though the audience of Isaiah was the people living contemporary to Isaiah. And we were also, well, at least I was maybe feeling a bit sorry for them or looking down on them a bit for not understanding Isaiah. But of course, we have to look at ourselves for that as well. And so, and the, on the worst sort of understanding, Luke, would be the sort where you think you understand. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, on that, I want to come back to something which Ken raised before we started recording, which was just how good Isaiah 40 is to read. Even, mm. you know, translated into a foreign language, which it is when it's in English, it's still beautifully poetic and illustrative. And evocative. Um, it feels good. It feels good, yeah. yeah. And maybe we can just enjoy reading it. Mm. Mm. Uh, we don't have to spend, uh, what are we at now, 40-something <laughs> minutes talking Which, about it. My <laughs> point is not that we've been wasting our time here. This is all good. Well, we love what, it. If, yeah. what if we released a podcast episode of Science? Now, there'd be a good idea. Says, says the guy who has to edit the podcast. Yeah, the silence podcast. It'd be just for those people who are addicted to their phones and they need uh, something on, so you can put on silence. It brings me back to what you said, Cam, about some of these, these liturgies and rituals in which there is an intentional point, of, point or period or time of silence. And the Adventist mm-hmm. worship tradition notably doesn't have anything like Mm. No, our um, school chaplain the other day. Sorry, Luke. Our school chaplain the other day mm. made a. I've forgotten the word now, Clancy. You'll know what it is. It's like a maze, but there's no corners in it, and they were inscribed labyrinth. on the labyrinth. A labyrinth. A labyrinth. <laughs> yeah, and and so you follow the path, but there's no there's no choice. Mm. You just follow the path, and these were set mm. into the floor of of churches for for people who were too poor to go on pilgrimages. You could go on a pilgrimage through the church, mm. and he made the whole school. We went through it in silence, and he said, you know, when you get to this point of the labyrinth, think of a person in your life that you are thankful for. And when you get to here, think of someone you need to, something you need to apologize for. And when you're here, and, and he had all these cues set up and, and it was about half a kilometer long, snaked up, curled, twisted into a path. And we all walked it in silence. And it was, mm. it was a very moving experience. You know what else that is, Cam? That mm. might, well, well, two things. The other thing I was going to say is that the silence thing reminds me also very much of the Quaker tradition, where a large yep. part of worship yep. is, is silence. communal silence. Yes. intentional communal silence which is very yes. interesting and, and indeed it ought not be broken unless you have something to say which is more valuable than the silence yeah indeed which yes. is oh I, could we just apply that rule everywhere anyway um, not in this podcast 
Cam, the other thing I was going to say, that that thing, the, the, the rituals of worship and things like that labyrinth as well, they are very reminiscent of some of the memory techniques and storytelling techniques and traditions of oral cultures. You know, we are a Reformation church who objected to, you know, the Reformation objected to a lot of ritualistic things. And part of the reason they become problematic is you forget their purpose mm. and the tool becomes more important than the goal. Um, and, you know, it becomes magic instead of assistance. Mm. Yeah. And this, I, this, the, the fact that this is a, it is a, it is a thing to help you remember. It is a thing to help you contemplate, you sort of contemplate. And, yeah. and it is a thing that helps you, you know, remember things that you don't have written down because you don't have access to that kind of thing. And instead, the thing itself becomes the special, magical. And I think that's, yeah. yeah. Very interestingly, there. there's two rituals <laughs> that Adventism preserves. Well, or, well, two rituals that Adventism follows that that are probably the most evocative and useful um, parts of our entire worship culture. And that is the foot washing, yeah. where a an actual... Uh, tangible thing. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sacrament. Um, yes, uh, but it's 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 a it's a. Uh, I'm not going to get it. Yeah, but it's an actual tan tangible physical act of service. Mm. It's symbolic, but you're actually doing something, you know. And and embedded in the doing of it is the meaning, and and mm. it's exactly mm. the same thing with also the communion, mm. where the the bread. And the wine, or the biscuit and the grape juice, are memory aids. They're props. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To prompt yeah. memories, emotions, feelings. And they are not magic in themselves. No, they're not. Aids, that aids to worship yeah. as well. Mm. Clancy, your they're, comment. They're, they're, that, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Luke, you, you finish. Okay. I was just uh, going to say they're the most meaningful things that I've experienced in Adventist worship, mm. and they're the rituals. Clancy, you commented that the reformers abandoned a lot of tradition because they felt, and and I think that even many people in the Catholic Church that were dissatisfied with the church. I mean, Luther was in the Catholic Church. Uh, so a lot of people felt dissatisfied with a lot of these traditions that had become objects of... Uh, adoration themselves. Ad adorations mm. themselves. Mm. And, and the, we, of course, disposed of those. And replace them with other things. Of course, mm -hmm. there's no risk that the things we rep replace them with. There's no, there's no risk that any of our liturgical elements uh, could ever become focal points in their own. Well, is there? let me let me just raise this up here. You've the, the the little the big black book that I've got here, which which our preachers stand in the pulpits and say the Bible and the Bible alone. And I just want to shout back and respond: No, 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 no. God and God alone. Um, so, I mean, surely one of the messages, if and I think it is, for, for all that I said earlier, saying that we're not really open or what we do is not very much like idolatry. I think asking the question, what is it in our lives which is most like an idol is a really good question. Mm. And mm. anything that becomes to, uh, becomes to us very precious uh, has that risk. And that can be little things like insisting that Sabbath school should start at half past nine and not ten. Or, um, no, 
Uh, Sorry, is this a current issue you're talking about, Cam? (laughs) It might be. Um, Or or which musical instruments are allowed in church or any any point of view that becomes just really important or the church building. I've had several people Mm -hmm. come and say to me, everyone's chatting out in the foyer um, and it's interrupting Sabbath school and they're making lots of noise in God's house. And the person who said this to me was making a serious point. They were saying that the people in the Sabbath school are having trouble hearing what's going on because of the discussions outside. Mm. The language they phrased it in turned me off a little bit. I was, I thought, is God's house so important that it is more important than people ministering right. to each other? There's, and, there's a whole look, other conversation there about um, what it means to be taking the Lord's name in vain. But well, that's it, another, it, another <laughs> podcast. Uh, so Lewis made a comment about church music. And this is an example, I think, of, of the way in which sneaky idolatry can sort of come in. He was once asked to comment on uh, whether we should stick to traditional music. He identified personally for himself that he saw art music, and I, I guess it wasn't all in a foreign language, but uh, whether to, to him, having, having a highly trained professionals doing it really well mm-hmm. was what made it worshipful for him. Whereas hymn singing was so vulgar. Um, he, he called it, what was it? A, he, he thought the hymns were second-rate poetry set to third-rate tunes or something. <laughs> yeah, um, I've heard that quote before. It's a good uh, one. <laughs> but he, he made the point that his own views on music are a bit irrelevant. To start with, he wasn't very musically uh, literate and well-trained. Mm. And it wasn't clear that anyone who was musically literate and well-trained, it gave them a legitimate pedestal on which to stand and tell everyone else what to do. In as much as God must be, God's tastes... It, the, he, he must experience things at a much higher plane than us anyway. And who's to say that what we regard as good music is seen even to the, him as good in, even, in that sense? Even the Berlin mm. Philharmonic singing uh, the last Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9 probably doesn't come very close to the choirs of heaven. Um, there's probably a, a greater difference between the choirs of heaven and that than there is between that and, well, perhaps local church music. In a practical sense though he said he could only think of two circumstances in which he could endorse a certain sort of music in church and one of them was if in a small church uh you know where um the they were writing to hymns and the person who was uh playing the hymns was not a super highly trained musician but he knew that there was someone in the audience who just loved bark or handle or and he struggled away and learnt the Bach piece to play as everyone walked out and it wasn't played very well but it was done with the intention of making this other person feel welcome in church Lewis said that's one circumstance that he could definitely endorse as being an appropriate worship a situation where worship was happening and the other one was of course the, the high church musician who wants eight parts highly trained choir um, you know careful structured verse rich meaning speaks six languages highly educated person but he just knows that old mrs so-and-so in the first pew really loves him and mm. and schedules one into the program uh just to make her feel welcome mm. uh they they were the only two circumstances that lewis could say that he felt comfortable um passing any judgment on whether whether mm. something was worshipful or not and I think that mm-hmm. when it comes to identifying in our church things that are idols, anything we do which which excludes people, and that can easily be doctrine like you said, Luke, or, or an insistence on 
a certain level of how strictly we should adhere to doctrine or anything we do that says to someone, this part of our church is more important than you. Mm. And God would be very upset if we left this out of church or if we, or if we bent this rule or if we included this musical instrument or if we changed the carpet to this colour or if we invited that person to the potluck you... or if we you know, put this food on the menu or anything we do that said to someone, you are less important to God than, than this. Mm. Uh, Cal, you, talk, you talked about um, how, you know, Lewis made the very accurate and insightful observation that we have no idea what type of music yeah. is actually pleasing to God. But yeah. we, we do know what sort of preconditions there are for something to be pleasing to God from examples in the Bible. And we actually looked at some in Isaiah, and there's lots in the Old Testament prophets. Micah 6, 8 always comes to my mind. Yeah. The story of Cain and Abel. We've talked about this on previous podcasts. And it's offerings which are made honestly and sincerely with the right intentions. Um it's, it's offerings that are not made while you're also committing atrocities or abusing or neglecting uh, vulnerable and needy people. Mm. Um, or it's worship that takes place when you're not committing atrocities or excluding vulnerable and needy people on the side. Mm. Um, that is what is pleasing to God. Um, I think uh, we often make an idol of ourselves. Oh, no. Yeah. And it's, it's our comfort and it's what we like. And I, I want um, to get a Sabbath blessing. That's why I come to church, is to get a Sabbath blessing. I, I would never do that. Yeah. And I mean, I think there is all... I mean, there is Sorry, space... Sorry, I would saying, never you know, do that. Yes, you would never do that, Ken. Um, but we, you know, we did talk before about how these passages have beauty in themselves. Yeah. And I think, I think you have, like a lot of things when we're talking about, you know, spiritual things and scriptural things, you have two sides of what we're talking about you have the fact that it is good and it is right and it is holy to find pleasure and aesthetic enjoyment and beauty in the way that we worship together and the way that we like things to be but there is holiness and rightness and goodness in moving ourselves and our own wants aside and that's what being part of the community of God is. Yeah. It's not and, just about us. And if we are if we are to be imitators of God, and God is someone who supports the lowly and the needy, who, who comforts people, who uses his the powers at his disposal, all those awesome powers, uh, mm. for very tender purposes, careful, gentle, uplifting, then then we should do the same. We are. My admonition to do a sort of quick fire round didn't work. We only got through one question. So, uh, <laughs> and we need to stop here. And Unless even that successful. part will need to be edited down. Yes. Well, the, the, right. the other well, 30 minutes on that one question. Mm. The, the yeah. other question I think is worth just leaving people with, and that's yeah. the bit in verse six um, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely people are grass. The grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, I mean, there's there's a whole podcast in that. And yeah. maybe our listeners can reflect on, on what that might be without us yes. discussing it. Because if we do, we'll go far beyond time. Well, that's right. And the lesson asks us, how do you, how do you interpret that? Or how do you let that 
that verse inform our lives? Uh, there's too many fun ideas. Please write in to us. Sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com is the email address and we enjoy reading comments. And we enjoy having these discussions. Uh, we hope you enjoy listening. And uh, and uh, if you find the podcast useful, feel free to, to share it with your friends. And if you find that everything we say is in error, then you can um, you can correct us. And I guess if you find us extremely distasteful to listen to, you can send us the podcast link to all your enemies. So, uh, uh, is, there's don't worry, we regularly think we're in error too. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we hope you uh, join us again next week, and uh, more fun, more fun discussions, and many questions left in the book of Isaiah.